Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, Homebrew All-Stars, and the forthcoming Simple Homebrewing from Brewers Publications, coming to you this June. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with a way to check it out. And on today's episode, well, we're going to be starting with some of your feedback, because uh, feedback is good. We're going to go to the pub, talk through the beery life, uh, hit the library to talk a little bit about industrial saison with light hopping. I talk a little bit about Denny's Brew at uh, Groundbreaker in Portland. And in the lounge, we're going to be talking with John Hall, who has just released a brand new book called Drink Beer, Think Beer. You know, you'll be able to hear him and I share a beer and talk about what we think is happening both with people's beer appreciation and with the beer industry. And I got to say, uh, I agree with so much of what he said. Yes, but be that as it may, it's time to talk about the craft beer industry. And I think it's time for us to well, get the show on the road. Yep. But before we do that, please take a listen to these messages from some of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners... Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey, we're back. Thanks for sticking around, and be sure that uh, when you patronize one of our sponsors, that you let them know that you heard about it here on Experimental Brewing. Okay, announcement time. First of all, there is a new episode of The Brew Files Out, episode 51. It's called Real-Time Recipe Design. Drew and I pull out a uh, request for a particular type of beer for the other one, and uh, we each come up with a recipe on the spot. Uh, I I thought it actually went pretty well. I don't think we came off as too stupid, do you? No, I think actually it was just great fun to show people the way our minds work and you know how we process ideas. And, and of course, uh, Eric and Aaron both won some uh, free hops for giving us their suggestions. That's right. Uh, the Yakima Chief Veteran Blend hops will be going out to uh, Aaron Kennison and Eric Pierce because we use their uh, recipe suggestions for a beet saison and a rye lager uh, to uh, come up with recipes for. 
Well, and don't forget to keep an ear out because you never know when we might be doing another one of these things. And, you know, maybe you can get your hands on something cool for doing something cool to help us with the show. And speaking of uh, cool things that are happening, uh, Asheville, brew your own, beer boot camp, uh, March 22nd to March 23rd with Marshall and Denny, and now with me. That's right, you're going to be able to spend time with all three of us in a room for a day talking about experimentation, things about beer, you know, what we think is important, what we don't think is important, and, you know, walking you through all the nonsense that happens because of citizen science. So if you're interested in spending time with the three of us, and of course others, because, wow, they always have a nice lineup at the boot camps, you can go to byobootcamp.com and register to, you know, take one of our classes. Don't forget to mention the the code experimental brewing in order to give us a little bit of a credit and you know, a little bit of a kickback and you know help keep the podcast going. Also, we want to announce uh, something altruistic. Wendy Jennings is uh, from Portland and uh, she is really uh, a light in the homebrew and beer world there. And uh, she is fighting cancer right now. And there's a GoFundMe being run by homebrew shop brewery, Brew Brothers and Three Mugs Brewing in Portland. Uh, listener Michael Malin pointed out to us that uh, Wendy and Brew Brothers have been big supporters of home brewing in Portland, and no one deserves to be swamped by bills thanks to cancer, of course. So uh, we'll put a link to that GoFundMe on our website, and uh, if you can help out Wendy, please do. There you go. And don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA brewswag.com use the code word experimental amazon brewers friends and hey remember to mention brewers friends that you saw us on experimental brewing because uh they're offering a great program and i know some of you are out there looking for alternatives to brew toad which is now shutting down so brewersfriends.com or use the byo link on the website to subscribe and by going to patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause which well we're running out of time but it is it is called Nowzad. It's uh, an organization based in Afghanistan that was started to help our soldiers there with the uh, animals they found, uh, bring the doggies home with them. Uh, great organization, great cause. Time is almost up, so go to experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link, and donate a couple bucks that we will pass along to them. And now, it's time for... Feedback. feedback. I love it when you say that. <laughs> I got a couple pieces of feedback and one question actually from me for the listeners. So pay attention. Uh, first piece of feedback on the website comes from Alkovic, who says about Denny in the forum. Ladies and gentlemen, I call to your attention that Jeff Tweedy of Wilco fame, previously of Uncle Tupelo fame, both really good bands, now bears a striking resemblance to Denny. It includes a YouTube link so you can see Jeff Tweedy uh, singing one of his new songs. And yeah, it's terrifying. You know, I'll, I'll take it, man. Uh, if only I could sing like Jeff Tweedy, I would be a very, very happy guy. If only I had a portion of Jeff Tweedy's uh, income. Uh, uh, our next piece of feedback comes from Aaron Kennison of the Rye Logger from the last Brew Files uh, episode. When he heard the episode in the morning, he wrote... I still can't believe my suggestion was chosen for Denny. I'll be spending my morning telling everyone I know. I do like that Denny's malt bill is pretty identical to my own personal recipe, but I chose a more modern German fruity variety. And so I followed up with him and asked him exactly what he used, and he said that he used uh, Hercules, but he wants to do a version with either the Huel Melon or the Mandarin Bavaria. 
and you know, kind of take it in that slightly more fruity tropical way as well. So I thought that was great. And yeah, Aaron, I mean, it just fell right into the idea. And I also think it was odd that you and I both chose sort of classical, not weird recipes for us, you yeah, know, well, without talking about it. Yeah, I well, I I think that that's because that's what we're kind of more interested in. I got to say, I would never have thought about using fruity hops because personally, I don't like fruity and rye. But uh, hey, you know, that's why we all brew our own beer. Exactly. And then uh, Wade Wallinger wrote on the website about the uh, the recipe episode. As a 25 year homebrew veteran, I appreciate your takes on recipe formulation. Really helped me to see new options. I made a smoked pumpkin saison this fall. I may substitute pumpkin with smoked beets next year. So me being curious, I asked him how exactly he smoked the pumpkin, and this is what he wrote back to me. I cut up a pie pumpkin to yield about five pounds when smoked and skinned. I cut the pumpkin into approximately two-inch square wedges with the skin on and smoked them with oak at about 200 to 250 degrees Fahrenheit until the pumpkin was soft, so about two hours. I skinned the wedges and added them to the mash. I also spiced the beer mildly. In the final product, it smoothed out nicely to provide a smooth rauchmaltz note in the background. So I kind of thought that was an interesting idea to toss into another idea for what to do with pumpkin. Well, I agree. And not only that, but it's a way to give some flavor to something like pumpkin, which doesn't really have much flavor in a beer oftentimes. Yeah. No, usually, let's face it, pumpkin beer is normally just pumpkin spice beer. That's right. All right, and last little thing uh, before we get on with the main show. Here's my question for everybody. One of the things that I saw in Australia, and of course I've read about in the past, and I've seen it also mentioned out of Canada, is the idea of fresh wort kits. And so if you went to our sponsor, Grain and Grape, you know, the folks who sponsor us down there to Australia, uh, they have a brewery in the the back of the shop. Uh, you know, what is it, like a 500-liter Braumeister? I think that's it. Yeah, a 500-liter Braumeister, and they hot-pack wort into plastic jerry cans, very much the idea of no-chill brewing, which Denny and I are both going to be playing around with later this year. And you walk into the store, and you buy 20 liters of wort and walk it out and go pitch your yeast in it. No no actual you know heating and brewing and anything else necessary. So I was stopping to think about it and thinking about where things are going in this world of brewing and was wondering, I haven't seen that here in the U.S., and I was wondering if anybody else had or if anybody's seen it anywhere other than Australia and Canada. So let us know if you know anything about the hot packed or fresh work kits, really, uh, available anywhere you know near you. So just email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Thank you. All right. It's time to have a beer. Yeah, man. And I finally can again. So uh, let's head over to the pub, have a beer and talk about the beer life. Stick around. We're going to be right back. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Autumn has arrived, and so has the opportunity to brew new seasonal styles. Yeast's robust and ruddy private collection offers a fresh pairing of strains for cooler days and palates seeking more body and complexity without compromising approachability. 2782 Staropragg Lager produces exceptional malt-forward German and Bohemian-style lagers. 
1581 Belgian stout will complement the Esther Forward Strong Ales and other specialty styles. And 9097 Old Ale Blend brings English heritage to your glass with a blend of Saccharomyces and a little Britannomyces to emulate traditional British strong ales and barley wines. These strains are available October through December at your local homebrew shop. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at whyeastlab.com. Welcome back. We are sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, wherever it is, and we're having a couple beers, and even I'm having a beer today. What are you drinking, Drew? Well, I'm sticking to the sounds of summer. I know it's wintertime and it's cold, but I just did an event with John, uh, who you'll hear from later in the episode, at the last bookstore, and the L.A. Brewers uh, Guild actually provided us beer to have while we were talking, which was wonderful. And it really reminded me that there was one beer that they had, and boy, do I love that beer. Beachwood Brewing Company, which is a company mostly known for their saisons and IPAs, they have a beer called Foam Top, which in the past had been billed as a cream ale. And you guys know how I feel about cream ale. They're now billing as a blonde ale, but it doesn't taste any different. So I think just marketing term changes. And uh, you know, it's always nice to get a, a well-made local option like that that really reminds you of what a just a light and refreshing beer can be. So even though it's a brisk 68 here in Southern California, I'm enjoying a nice lawnmower beer. A brisk 68. It was 29 here this morning. <laughs> And you, Denny? I am having my very first Sierra Nevada celebration of the year, and oh my God, it just proves to me why I love this beer and look forward to it every year. It's like, it's Chinook, it's Centennial, it's Cascade, it's uh, Crystal 60. It is my idea of a perfect, perfect IPA. Uh, if you guys like the hazy stuff without bitterness, that's fine. Uh, more power to you, but this is the IPA I'm going to be drinking. It is delicious, and I love it. Well, and what was funny to me was, I know the last time I had the celebration, and we joked about how it's it's not as bitter anymore. And I don't know if it's me, but I, like, I actually feel like this year's batch is more bitter than what I normally think of. But then again, that's a year's difference, and yeah, you know, who knows what my brain's saying. It, it's you. It's still 65 IBUs, just like every year, you know? So it's just a question of memory. Yep. So, uh, but good choice. And of course, that then leads us into, well, I think maybe we need to talk about a new breed of IPA drinker. Yeah. Yeah. This story showed up in, uh, in New Brewer magazine, which maybe a lot of you don't, uh, don't get. Uh, it was very interesting and immediately pissed me off. What doesn't piss you off? Oh, lots of, lots of things. Uh, you know, it, it just, and maybe it was just kind of the quotes from what that were getting thrown around because the, the article itself is a little bit more balanced. Nuanced. Uh, yeah. Than, than, uh, the, the headlines would lead you to believe, uh, you know. Yeah. I mean, this, I mean, this started getting shared around. It's an article by Mike, uh, Kallenberger. And I, the quote that 
that got shared around, I think that really made a lot of people go, but what was that the IPA centric drinker is seldom particularly involved in beer. He or she is generally not knowledgeable about beer and isn't interested in learning more. (laughs) Right. That, that was what pissed me off because, you know, I drink a lot of different kinds of beer. I, I know a reasonable amount about beer, but I will still order an IPA 90% of the time because that's what I like. We all have our own particular tastes, uh, and there's no reason they all need to be the same. So, you know, I just don't know if there was a reason to say that without being a little bit more specific about what he was talking about. Well, I mean, to be fair, that was a poll quote that that was taken out of context in the article. But the article was really using research from Tenth and Blake, which is Miller's craft beer arm. And the quotes were from the marketing analysis, right? This is marketers writing about this sort of stuff. And really, when you look at it, the argument in the article and the argument from the the research was saying that the modern IPA drinker is really kind of like the way everybody used to be. I am a hams man, or I drink Budweiser. I'm not going to drink Miller. That stuff's terrible for you. And that the modern IPA drinker is that, but instead of necessarily being brand loyal, because they're not necessarily brand loyal, some of them are, they're style loyal and really only interested in that one particular style. So the thing that they were talking about was, yeah, the IPA centric drinker tends to drink uh, other styles relatively seldom. And even if they aren't brand loyal, they rarely ever explore outside of IPA. And then that leads into that pull quote that everybody was, you know, sort of jumping on, which is that they're uninterested in beer. And it's just talking about that sort of new trend IPA drinker. Uh, and I don't mean new trend meaning hazy, just like, yeah, in a lot of ways, it's old man shaking the fist at new drinkers not playing the way that he wants them to play. Yeah, I was going to say, so what's the problem if these people just want to drink IPA? Uh, you know, I I might wish that they branched out to try something different for their their own benefit. But if all they want to drink is IPA, I don't care. And I don't see why anybody else should either. Oh, yeah. But it's, I think the reason that you talk about it in New Brewer is, I mean, there are a lot of people who are worried that that we're sort of developing a monoculture in craft beer, I think is probably the most accurate way of saying it. That we've replaced the monoculture of, you know, American lager with the monoculture, at least inside of craft beer of IPA. Yeah. And, and of course, I mean, look, I mean, it's nothing new. I mean, I've been hearing people complain for years about going into a brewery or going into a tap space and seeing that half or more of the taps are IPAs and, yeah. and getting cheesed off about that. And I, I totally get it. But this one, it's, it's interesting because just from trying to understand your market point of view to understand that, you know, as a professional brewer, at least that there is a portion of your market that just really doesn't give a damn about anything except for IPAs. And again, um, why does that matter? You know, uh, why throw a temper tantrum because they don't like the kind of beer that you like. Well, again, I don't think the article itself was throwing a temper tantrum. I think the article itself was trying to, was trying to explain things. I do think some of the marketing pull quotes were, um, provocative yeah and, and again keep in mind this is from new brewer which is uh, strictly aimed at commercial brewers um so there again their their concern is you know will there be a market for other kinds of beer than ipa 
And of course there will. This whole thing about IPA is going to run out all other styles is just so ridiculous. I can't believe it. Well, I mean, I can understand the concern, but let's ask the audience. What do you guys think? Is there too much IPA? Is you know IPA ruining the rest of your craft beer experience? Or are you a dedicated IPA drinker? Damn the man, whatever, whatever he thinks. Let us and, know, and, podcast at expertmillbrew.com. And what is too much IPA? And, you know, if if you're the kind of person who says, yeah, I want to see more milds. Well, what if people don't like milds? Uh, I don't know, man. I I just think that there's room for everybody and all the different styles and let people drink what they want to drink. And At least around here, right? I'm in the middle of IPA country, and I still see a lot of variety in beers. Well, and I did think Oregon got a carve out in the article. <laughs> All right. Well, now speaking from, you know, IPAs ruining everything to people trying to decide whether or not, you know, uh, breweries using the word farmhouse is ruining everything. Uh, let's uh, jump over to uh, Scratch Brewing Company. So in Good Beer Hunting, uh, they included an, an excerpt of a longer article written by the folks behind Scratch Brewing. Um, Scratch Brewing is in Southern Illinois, and they are a a brewery that has become famous for doing beers that involve, you know, local sort of uh, flora and fauna things that they've harvested off their farm area. So they had a, a book that came out last year called the scratch beer almanac, which is an interesting book to dig through because it does talk about seasonality and beer, but actually the seasonality in terms of plants going into beer and talking about like, Oh, Hey, you know, go use this sort of birch bark or this sort of, you know, leave or something in your, in your beer during this period of time. And the whole article is about keeping the farm in farmhouse beer. And I think the title right there gives you what the argument is, which is that you know, they're saying there are a lot of people out there who are using the term farmhouse. And we all we all know exactly what that means, right? You, you know exactly what it means. A funky Cezanne type beer, you know, possibly some, you know, uh, Brett characters or uh, overt Brett characters to it. And, you know, but, you know, is there any actual farm to it? You know, I'm talking that, you know, we have the romantic notion of the farm as with the old Cezanne legend and their argument is, Hey, look, you know, there are more and more people playing around with growing their own ingredients and putting their own ingredients and things. So we should reserve the word farmhouse for people who are doing precisely that. You know, the people who are making ingredients to go into their beer, who are truly putting the farm into a farmhouse beer. So, in other words, they think farmhouse should mean what they want it to mean and not what somebody else wants it to mean. Yeah, and so they're, they actually had five touchstones. They said, basically, a farmhouse brewery grows a significant amount of plants for its beer on site or on land that's managed by farmers who work for the brewery. A farmhouse brewery strives to make beer with plants that are grown and processed within the bounds of the brewery's ecological growing region. So... Okay, keep it local. A uh, farmhouse brewery utilizes its unique microflora for fermentation and relies minimally on special lab processing to store, grow up, or otherwise control strains of yeast or bacteria. A farmhouse brewery embraces the natural water profile it finds on site and minimally changes it to suit its brewing needs. And last, a farmhouse brewery operates entirely within the bounds of its materials and means. So, yeah, it it is very much like... Yeah, here's our manifesto that we run our brewery by, and we think everybody else should adopt it. Yeah, you know, we have a brewery around here who uh, I won't actually name, who does very much the same thing. Of those five points, I would bet that they probably do at least four of them, maybe all five. And quite frankly, to me, it seems their beers are more often about the farmhouse than the beer. 
It's like, look, we grew this and we put it in beer and you try the beer and you go, whatever made you think that this was a good idea? Uh, so, you know, I'm not necessarily opposed to their definition, but I'm not sure that uh, these guys should be allowed to decide what the definition is uh, because I'm not sure that it's always a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, look, I dig what they're talking about. Like, you know, it's a little bit of an expansion on the uh, sort of locavore thing that that you see in the cuisine side of house. But to me, it just seems, I don't know. I, I think you have to come up with a different term. Uh, farmhouse has been co-opted. We all have an idea of what farmhouse means to us, right? Uh, and uh, trying to, you know take it back in a way that's never actually been used here in the U.S. seems a little, uh, it seems a little foolhardy. Uh, I, I would totally be down if, if they came up with another, uh, another name for it, because then at least it'd be like, okay, yeah, sure. No problem. Um, but it's an interesting article to read, even if you don't agree with their stance about farmhouse, it's kind of interesting to me to see, you know, like, yeah, sort of the evolution of the philosophy um, and, you know, what they think and how it influences their beer. And uh, Scratch at least gets a lot of um, a lot of positive press for not only the creativity of the ideas that they're using, but also for the quality of the beer as well. So uh, I'll give them I'll, I'll give them that. All right. And so from people trying to define terms that may or may not be foolhardy to people using locally grown ingredients, although not locally grown before by the time they got to them. Uh, our founding father of homebrewing here in the U.S., Charlie Papazian, uh, now retired from the Brewers Association, uh, actually got involved with the Smithsonian. You, you guys may remember uh, earlier this year, or maybe it was last year. I can't even remember anymore. They talked about how uh, Charlie's brewing logs and his homebrewing spoon and everything else ended up in the Smithsonian, right, as part of a, a, a whole endeavor that they're doing, talking about food and here in America and food history and the beer history stuff that they're doing. Um, well, it turns out that the Smithsonian also has a really cool botany project where they, they actually have their victory gardens. Like you guys may remember the old victory garden concept from around world war one and world war two, where it was like, Hey, you know, grow a bunch of produce on your farm or on your land, actually, you know, rip up your lawn, grow food and, you know, keep the war effort going. Well, the Smithsonian did that too, and they've actually still kind of kept it going and now using it more as a showcase of a lot of different things. So they are actually there in Washington, D.C., growing hops. And if I remember correctly, they were growing uh, Cascades. Cascade Nugget. Ah, there you go. Cascade Nugget. And so when Charlie visited them to go surrender the spoon, the spoon of destiny, uh, got a tour of the garden, saw the hops, and, oh, you know, it'd be kind of fun to brew with those. And Sure enough, they'd been sharing them out with local homebrewers, but sure enough, they sent Charlie a, a batch. So on craftbeer.com, you can actually read about Charlie's Smithsonian Porter, and he got a whole bunch of dried Cascade from them and you know shared them out with Brewer Association colleagues and uh, other people in the area and kind of made this porter based on uh, Narragansett Porter, you know, out of Rhode Island. And, you know, the recipe's there and just kind of cool. To me, it it makes perfect sense that uh, if they had hops, they would get Charlie to brew some beer with them. Yeah, and I mean, it's very much an American porter because it's basically Pilsner malt and then uh, flaked corn, uh, aromatic, uh, and two blacks. 
and the, the blacks are non-traditional and the Air Max probably a little non-traditional, but combining that Pilsner and corn definitely falls into kind of an American thing. Narragansett was owned by Falstaff, and so they would have done a, kind of an American cereal mash in order to make the basis of their beer because that's what they did for all their other beers. Right. So very cool. If you want to go, if you want to go see it, yeah, definitely uh, go see this sort of American lagered porter. Uh, the recipe is on uh, homebrewersassociation.com. We'll also include a link to the craftbeer.com uh, website so you can read the article and see the video that they uh, showed of, of, of Charlie actually doing this brew and go have a, go have an American brew. Okay. Well, I think that we've uh, about exhausted everything here. What do you say? We finish these beers and move along to the library. Okay. Let's do that. <laughs> Boy, he wasn't hard to convince. Uh, we're going to take a quick break now so you can listen to some messages from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll be talking about Drew's favorite subject, Saison. So stick around. Explore the history of tart, fruity, and refreshing Goza-style beer with the latest book from Brewer's Publication, Goza, Brewing a Classic German Beer for the Modern Era. Written by award-winning veteran brewer Fal Allen, Goza includes 27 recipes, including Sea Quench Sour from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and Ruben Brew's 2017 Great American Beer Festival gold medal-winning Goza. Right now, Brewers Publications is giving experimental homebrewing listeners a discount on Goza. Go to brewerspublications.com and use code EXPERIMENTAL to take 20% off Goza. That's right, you'll save 20% when you use code EXPERIMENTAL at brewerspublications.com. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. We're sitting here in the library, surrounded by stacks of musty books, and uh, Drew is going to talk about an article about Saison that he ran across. Yeah, so Hoor's Category, who we've had on the Brew Files before, uh, posted this uh, actually in November, uh, but I'm just catching up, and it's a recipe for Saison uh, from 1911, and it's really kind of another uh, cool article in the midst of like all this stuff about you know trying to dig out the in- rise of industrial Saison. And remember, we've talked in the past that a lot of the romantic notions that we have of Saison are romantic. And uh, he's been digging into the actual sort of, you know, how does how did Saison actually work? And uh, thankfully, he can read Old French and actually go through and, and figure it out. And very cool recipe here because I also mentioned one thing that I hadn't really read about before, which is uh, doing coupage and or coupage, I suppose, if it's French. And... 
basically the idea is that a lot of these beers were being served as a blend of young beer, but also a little bit of older sour beer, kind of give it a little extra kick. Remember, this is a lot of time when you know you still had a lot of sour beers, you know, very active on the market. So that sour character would not have been completely unexpected and probably desired. And so the recipe itself actually does use a bit of old old sour beer with a bit of fresh young beer to be able to actually kind of give you a nice blend. And the other thing that was interesting about it was also just the amount of late hopping in this uh, beer at the, you know, the final knockout, right? So uh, almost equal portions of 30 minute hops and whirlpool hops so that you had a lot of actual hops in here. Now, of course they would have been weaker hops because of the hop technology at the time and where the farms were. And so just to give you an idea of what we're talking about here in terms of hopping rates, uh, talking about like, you know, 0.4 ounces per gallon of Strissel Spalt, which is of course uh, like a really low alpha acid hop. So like two to 3% for 60 minutes. And then 0.2 ounces per gallon of EKGs, you know, one of Denny's favorites, uh, you know, at 30 minutes. And then again, another 0.2 ounces of Zots at, you know, knockout and basically allowing you to, you know, whirlpool it for a little bit. And it was really interesting to see that. I mean, you had a fairly substantial amount of finishing hops in there just to be able to, you know, kind of throw this thing out the other side. And of course, he's also using, uh, if you remember back to the Brew Files episode about Grisette, he's using a combination of, you know, regular malt and sort of that chit malt in there. So really kind of uh, cool to see. I definitely give you some good ideas for if you want to go really, really old school. And remember, again, this is before Belgium started to get the whole development of big beer. So I mean, this beer was still only like 1048 of original gravity. So not that big. 5.5%, very reasonable beer. And looks like a really interesting place to start if you want to kind of formulate an older school saison that would have been around in a lot of places. Yeah, and even if you don't want to brew the recipe, there's some uh, real interesting historical data in there that's that's kind of fascinating. Yep. So real quick read, go enjoy it. Of course, always read that blog because I do too, and it's a lot of fun. So onward and upward. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to move over to the brewery, and we're going to talk about my gluten-free day at Groundbreaker Brewing in Portland. So we'll be right back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. Welcome back. You can hear the airlocks burbling in the background. You can hear, well, the sound of beer being made because we are in the brewery. And I think, you know, since we've both been, you know, running around doing different beering adventures, uh, but not actually a lot of brewing recently, I think it's a time that we talk about one of uh, Denny's commercial uh, adventures uh, up there at Groundbaker Brewing Company. Denny? 
Yeah, uh, I heard from uh, my buddy James Neumeister at Groundbreaker a few months ago that they were re-releasing their St. Denny Double, which is uh, a gluten-free version of a double. And he asked if I wanted to come up for the release, and of course I did. It's uh, not a very long drive, and I was ready to hit the road. So I went up there and uh, spent a few hours at Groundbreaker that day drinking a uh, number of gluten-free beers. And uh, if anyone has ever tried to tell you that a gluten-free beer can't be every bit as good as a barley-based beer, let me tell you that uh, Groundbreaker will put the lie to that for sure. Uh, I had the double. Uh, I had their dark ale. I had an IPA. And they were all outstanding, and I don't think that you would ever have known they were gluten-free unless someone told you that they were. And um, just to make sure, you know, they're, they're responding to the software people. I mean, they're literally gluten-free. They're not gluten-reduced. There's no barley or anything else. No, they are, they are so gluten-free that uh, you cannot even bring anything containing gluten into the pub. If you'd gone and bought a, a loaf of bread somewhere else, you would be forced to leave it outdoors when you came in because uh, they they really really want to be completely and 100 percent gluten-free they want to ha have a place where people who have uh, actual bad gluten allergies can go and uh, feel like they can get something to eat and drink there and i did meet several people like that uh, who really really do have severe uh, food allergies the uh, pub, I'll just say there, is freaking astounding. The food is fantastic. Uh, James was telling me that there have been people who've come in for the food, sat down, had uh, dinner there, had a beer, and then went, oh, you're gluten-free? <laughs> Didn't even realize it. For uh, for those of us who aren't privy, what exactly is he using then to make the double and triple? The base of all of his beers is roasted chestnuts and roasted lentils. Uh, those are those are the big uh, things that he uses. He uses uh, amylase to convert them. And, you know, you really, I mean, obviously, you know, he's not going to be making a barley wine or something like that. But James has come home from GABF uh, with seven medals over the course of seven years. Uh, his dark ale has won four of those for, for him. The beers are absolutely fantastic. Uh, I highly encourage you, whether you uh, eat and drink gluten-free or not, should you be in the Portland area, stop by Groundbreaker, get something to eat, get a beer, and you will just enjoy it immensely. I'm assuming the St. Denis is no longer available, or is it? You know, I don't know. They may still have some cans left. They had it on tap and in cans. Actually, when I was there, they had uh, three different versions of it. They had the straight version that was on nitro. They had a version that I think had been aged on pumpkin, and they had another version that had been aged on cranberries, uh, which was actually very... And that was the one that had my favorite name. That was the Bogdenny. Yeah, yeah, I, I kind of like that too. Uh, yeah, uh, so I mean, they were they were all great beers, and uh, James was kind enough to send me home with some, and I had some friends out and uh, opened up one of the IPAs, and it was just stunningly good. Uh, the one thing I will say is that because of his quest to remain gluten free, he has to use dry yeast, right, so that uh, the yeast doesn't end up being cultured with any kind of uh, glutinous material. Uh, and as we all know, uh, 
dry Belgian yeasts are kind of like few and far between that really have any character. So uh, he uses, I think I believe he told me that it was uh, T58, but to cut down on the phenolics, he also uses a portion of S33 with it, uh, which is not really a Belgian yeast, but it doesn't matter. But, I mean, you're not going to be getting the big estuary phenolic character that you would from some other Belgian yeast, but it works. It works really well. Well, there you go. So make sure you get to Groundbreaker Brewing. Maybe they still have some, and if not, they still have some pretty awesome beers. Yeah, they certainly do, and man, get the beef stew. It rocks. (laughs) All right, I think it's time to go lounge. All righty, we're going to take a quick break, head over to the lounge, and uh, listen to an interview that... Drew did with John Hall, who knows more about beer than most people know you can know about beer. Stick around. We're going to be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. We're here lounging in the lounge. Uh, Drew recently had a chance to go to a beautiful brew pub that I had had a chance to see when I was down there a couple months ago and spend uh, some time chatting with John Hall, who is formerly an editor of All About Beer magazine. John has been around the beer scene for a long, long time and knows a lot about beer and the business of beer. And I always enjoy listening to what he's got to say. Yeah, and... John and I actually, uh, well, we had an event because he's out promoting his new book, uh, Drink Beer, Think Beer, which, oddly enough, we all do. And, you know, we had done a panel discussion with me and a couple of others from L.A. uh, at the last bookstore, which, by the way, is a really awesome bookstore here in L.A. And then the next day, I met up with him as he was getting ready to run off to LAX to go fly back to uh, New Jersey. And we met at Union Station, which is home to the brand new Imperial Western Beer Company in one of my favorite spaces. Uh, Danny's not lying. I I took him around on a tour uh, just so I could show him Union Station because Union Station is one of my favorite places. And then Devin Randall, who's been on the podcast in the past from Arts District, is also now brewing there. It's all part of the same company. And we got a chance to sit down in this absolutely gorgeous space that is sort of indicative of where some of craft beer is going. And, you know, talk a little bit about, I mean, we talked a lot, we kind of ranged all over the place, but, you know, talked a lot about where craft beer culture has been, where's it going, and controversially enough, what John thinks needs to happen in order for craft beer to keep being strong. So, sit back, imagine yourself in a gorgeous space from the 1940s, and let's do this. So what did you end up getting? Uh, beer-wise? Mm-hmm. The 
pale lager. The pale lager. Uh, so you're playing true to type. Yeah. So and <laughs> and playing true to type means that uh, you know once again we are sitting in a brewery and I'm sitting here with Mr. John Hall. Mr. John, nice to see you again. I know. Last time we talked, it was a couple of years ago. We were uh, in Newark and or Jersey we're, City. We we're in Jersey City. That's right. And I was racing to Newark and ended up missing my flight by five minutes. Oh God! Did you? Yes. But fortunately, Newark to L.A., there's a flight every hour. Yeah. So, got the next flight. Wow. Sorry about that. We were having a good time then. We were. Yeah. And I turned down the wrong street and got yelled at by a Jersey City cop, too. That was fun. <laughs> well, we like to give people the authentic experience when they come, you know, and, you know, being harassed by JC's finest is definitely uh, part of it. Yeah. Well, so you've got a lager, I've got a dark mild also playing true to type mm-hmm. and we are actually sitting in the imperial western beer company uh in union station in la and it is one of my favorite spaces bar yeah. none yeah uh this was a former harvey house that's now been turned into a brew pub and it's actually way too gorgeous to be a brew pub oh you think so yeah this no this is i mean no i mean i love this place i could just sit here forever yeah you know it's got this you know this really wonderful sort of what is it like spanish revival art deco hybrid navajo Navajo. yeah yeah Um, there's a a mix of art deco and spanish and navajo elements to it uh but i love it they got a shuffleboard table um everything has really been restored uh really quite well and i i i kind of like it right because people walk in here and they're immediately going to be like wow like this is a cool mm-hmm. space and then they make their own beer here and for a transient population you know people who are literally just coming and passing through or killing time waiting for somebody uh the opportunity to introduce local beer to mm-hmm. introduce milds to introduce lagers that are not industrial uh to introduce you know saisons and everything else like that that's a, this is a really cool captive audience for only a few minutes or so. And and I think this could actually help elevate beer. So I, I, I like the fact that there's a brewery here. Yeah, it's I, I think it's definitely one of the best pints that you can ever get when you have to get ready to travel or yes. when, you're, when you're done traveling. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because, yeah, once again, I mean, this is at Union Station, which is the last of the grand train halls built uh, here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, boy, does it live up to that idea of being grand. 100%. Uh, it, it, people out there in the audience would have actually probably most likely seen Union Station in good lord endless numbers of movies and so tv shows movies. Yeah. Uh, my my favorite the one I, I will always remember it's the detective's office in blade runner is that true yeah the uh, the the old ticketing lobby is used as the the detective's office i had no blade idea Runners. yeah so john uh, you're here in la for reasons what are the reasons i have a new book out it's called drink beer think beer getting to the bottom of every pint and I've been doing a few events uh, out here in California. I did a few down in San Diego and then uh, uh, been here in L.A. for the last couple of days doing them. And we did a fun talk last night at the last bookstore uh, with uh, the two of us. And we had uh, Francis Lopez and we had Alex Kidd and we had John Verivi. And it was actually a lot of fun talking about the art of writing about beer and how we communicate and how uh, people you know, should think about beer 
you know, not necessarily in just liquid terms, but in, in, in word terms. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and it was a lot of fun. And that's what the whole book is about, uh, is sort of thinking outside of the pint of beer and, and what's happening around us. And so the aesthetics of a tap room mm-hmm. or the cleanliness of a glass or, you know, how the beer is served to us. And then, you know, how we drink at home and our drinking habits at home and how beer is marketed to us uh, through television and radio and, and podcasts and everything else like that. So, yeah, the book is this sort of all-encompassing kaleidoscopic look at beer but not necessarily beer right so the, the, a not lot the, of the product but the essence of a lot of the things that surround the world of beer and what yeah. we take in and, and just like what we were talking about uh, this space is absolutely gorgeous space to be in to have a pint of beer 100 percent. and i it, it's one of these things like where you can almost feel like it's okay to miss your train while you're here if you're enjoying the beer of course you won't um but it really you know i i, I love the places where beer fits into something that, you know, this could have been a Starbucks or this could have been a, you know, a something else or just some sort of generic steakhouse uh, with overpriced, you know, steak frites or, or, or whatever. Um, the fact that it's a brewery, I think, really sort of speaks to how beer is a great leveler and how beer can bring people together and, you know, how beer really has a place everywhere. Well. And in some ways, I think it it speaks to the changing expectations that we have about beer. You know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, when this whole brewery explosion started about a decade ago, you know, and suddenly everybody and their grandmother was opening up a a tap room, Mm -hmm. you know, it felt like you expected to walk into a place and it was folding tables and, you know, a kegerator and... Yeah. Oh, yeah. We got those big uh, cable spools as tables. Yeah. <laughs> God. I, you know, and I remember those days. You know, and it was in a, a warehouse where there was holes in the walls. And I, you know, I tell a story in the book of being at a brewery uh, that had opened up years and years and years ago. And I was in the men's room taking a leak, and uh, uh, one of my friends started calling to me. And I looked around, and there's a hole like in the wall. And he's just standing there waving to me. It's like, what? Like, I'm not going to bring my wife here. Like, I'm not, you know, like, I, this isn't a place that I want to hang out, like, by any means. Um, uh, so it's nice to see that, because we've always cared about the liquid, but we, never, mm-hmm. we, we haven't necessarily cared about where we were drinking it. But I think that as beer becomes more mainstream and that, you know, you're reaching out to the 87% of beer drinkers that are not identified as craft. Mm-hmm. You need places like this, like the new Russian river, you know, like comfortable tap rooms that are inviting and welcoming mm-hmm. and are indicative of the beer that's being made. I, I think if, if, if I can walk into a place and see that they've run a broom across the floor recently, they're going to care about their beer in the same way. But in, in some of those old places, like you'd walk in and it's like, they haven't used a mop in God knows how long, and the beer kind of reflected that. Oh, that's I mean that's so true. Like uh, I I developed a rule when I was doing my tour of LA County breweries, which was that if I walked into a place and say they were doing you know standard American craft brew or German German focus or even British focus, and the place was clean and well put together, I had a fairly sure bet that the beer was at least going to be decent. Mm-hmm. If I walked into a place and it was dirty, I had a fairly good shot at like the beer being questionable. Except for if somebody was focused on farmhouse stuff. 
it almost seemed like the the, the reverse was true with yeah. farmhouse beers. It was like if you're if you're trying to make a lot of saisons and your brewery's too clean, something just is off. And I don't know if that's an actual thing or if that's my perception. No, but we, but and and I get, I get into this in the book of we drink with our eyes in so many ways as well, and where the beers are indicative of the place or an extension of the place, I think it makes it that much better. You know, like when you visit Sierra Nevada, that is the cleanest brewery. I've ever been to, mm-hmm. like, hands down. I and mean, I think it's, it is it is one of the cleanest in the world, if not the cleanest. Like, you could drop a fried egg on the floor and 10 minutes later go and pick it up and mm-hmm. you're not going to worry about contamination or anything else like yeah. that. The five-second rule doesn't apply at that brewery. But, but that's also how we think of their beers, mm-hmm. of you know clean and quality consistency every single time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but then there's other places where... You walk in and, you know, there's a heavy metal influence mm-hmm. in the decor and in the music that's playing. And that sort of translates into the beers and to their labels as well. And there's, um, you know, other places as well where, where the beer and the place tell and share the same story. Oh, yeah. I, the one that immediately jumps to my mind is New Glarus. Oh, yeah. Uh, the New Glarus Hilltop Brewery where you walk in and one, it looks like a faux Swiss chalet from the outside. Uh-huh. And then you walk in and it is... It is a testament to the glory of gleaming stainless steel and beautiful piping everywhere. And then you, you have their beer, and their beer is so clean and crisp and well-executed that, I mean, yeah, it matches up perfectly. Sure. Uh, yeah. But it has that also, that old-world charm as well. You know, a lot of the fruited beers that Dan Carey does at New Glarus are, everybody pays attention to, the, to Spotted Cow, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's... Uh, it's certainly a runaway success. I mean, the best-selling beer in, in the state of Wisconsin is Spotted Cow, you know, and that's Miller Light Country. Like, know, that's, that's it's amazing. Yeah. Um, but the beers that he makes are, you know, indicative of that sort of sprawling farmland, mm-hmm. and yeah. Well, and I can't. I mean, I know he has a lot of other sort of fruited sours and other sour type beers out there, but I've never gotten bored of the Belgian Red or Wisconsin Red. Sorry. Yeah, it's a great beer. Yeah, that's just. That's an amazing beer, and it's so wonderful to always return to. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, but you have to go to Wisconsin to do it. I know. Or, or have connections in it. Yeah, of course. So let's talk about that then. You know, with the changes that we're seeing, or what, here, let's put it the, uh, this way. With, you know, this sort of explosion of breweries that we've had now and the penetration of breweries that we have and the fact that I were over 7,000 and heading, heading towards 9,000 right now. What in your minds have been the biggest changes to craft beer culture and craft beer drinking? I think we've lost our way a little bit. Uh, in what way? Um, with so much choice, we're not necessarily stopping and thinking about what's happening. You know, it's it's cool to cite those numbers and it's cool to say, you know, L.A. County has 90 breweries and it's going to have 100. And, you know, I, I guess at some point, do we stop and say to ourselves, do we need that many? And, you know, are numbers all that matter at this point? Because there's still a lot of shitty breweries that exist right now, uh, you know, but there, there, there are uh, that exist these days. And that's really frustrating in that. Places that are opening up right now probably have no business of opening, you know, unless you're going to come and bring your A game and a tremendous amount of uh, dedication to the quality of. I think about this industry, right? 
think about the the shoulders of giants that a brewery that opens up tomorrow is standing on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just the ones that have been around for 40 years or 400 years. Uh, it, it, it's the entire civilization of, you know, humans, mm-hmm. uh, is built on beer. And so if you're going to come and just do some sort of like middling nonsense, why? And so, so that's the thing. So that, that, that's what worries me right now is I would love to see more breweries open. I think it'd be cool to get to 9,000. I think it'd be cool to get to 10,000, but those are arbitrary numbers. Mm-hmm. If the next 2000 that open 80% or even 8% suck. Mm-hmm. Well, I almost, uh, I've talked about this on the podcast before. I mean, it's like we're getting to the point now with breweries where, you know, enough people have a local brewery. I forget what the numbers were. It came out like, you know, an insane percentage of people live within 10 miles of a brewery. Yeah, it's it's like the majority of Americans yeah. now. It's like 90%, yeah. We're almost getting to the point where... It, it, it's like, you know, everybody's brewery is like, oh, I've got my local brewery, like I've got my local pizza store. Mm-hmm. You know, my local pizza store may make terrible pizza, but it's my local pizza store. Uh, and I think we're I think we're getting to that point. But Right, but you also are willing to then drive the extra five minutes or mm-hmm. to pay the extra delivery fee from the guy who's ten minutes away yeah. to get the better pizza. You know, like we don't compromise when it comes to pizza. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't compromise when it comes to other things, you know, in their life. I don't know why beer keeps getting the pass in the way that it does, but I do think that that era is, is quickly coming to a close. And I certainly hope it does. Well, I mean, that's got to be the, the remnants of the us versus them type thing, you know, where we're the scrappy upstarts, you know, taking sure. on big beer. But, you know, it used to be they would talk about, uh, you know, brewing industry professionals would talk about how a rising tide would lift all boats. Mm-hmm. These days, more and more and more, I'm hearing from brewers who are saying, let the leaky boats sink. Do you think that's because they're worried about quality impacting you know, people's opinion of craft beer or because of the concentration in the market or in the, and the competition that's happening now? Or? I think it's both. You know, and I think it's, it, it's all of that. You know, this is a business at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. You know, think about when... Microbrew was rebranded as craft, uh, especially after the great shakeout, um, mm-hmm. where it was people stopped drinking microbrew because a lot of it was really terrible. Well, you didn't you didn't want another strawberry blonde. <laughs> but you know, but you know what I mean. So, so, so I think we're getting to this point again, and I'm not necessarily talking about a shakeout. Like businesses open, businesses close. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's going to be ones that will surprise people. There's going to be ones that you know hurt. Uh, in the psyche of us, the beer drinker. But I, I, at the end of the day, um, a lot of these places, though, if you're making a stout that is teeming with diacetyl, mm-hmm. you know, or a lager or an alt or whatever, and you haven't figured it out, and you've been open for six months, a year, two years, and people are now savvy enough to know to not come to your place, and you're watching your receipts dry up, and you're watching, like, you know, your tap room, you know, be empty. That's on you. Well, I'm still amazed though, because I, I mean, here in LA, I've I've been to some breweries, you know, and, and around Southern California, where I've been to some breweries that have been open for years, and their beer is still terrible, but they still draw in their local crowd. They they've got their regulars, the people who have, you know, they've they've done what we always used to make fun of people, uh, 
doing in the macro world where it's like, I'm a Paps man. Mm-hmm. I'm a Miller man. You know, I'm not going to drink that Budweiser. Right. Uh, but now they're like, I'm an XYZ microbrewery man because they're my local and, and they stick by them, even though the beer is terrible. Right. But at some point, some scrappy upstart will open up down the block. Mm-hmm. And they will make better beer, and they will capture that new generation. And then, if all you have is a dwindling clientele that is aging like you, mm-hmm. and new people aren't walking through the door, and customers are your lifeblood, yeah, that place down the street will start eating your lunch. And you know, I mean, but this, these, I mean, this is like common business practice, yeah. right? Like this is this is business one hundred and one. And for some reason, there are certain brewers who I've encountered who think that the rules don't apply to them because, oh, we're craft beer or we're independent or we're whatever we're, we're local, using. Right? Yeah. And it's like that that can only get you so far. you know. And then at some point, the cliff is going to happen and you're either going to have your hang glider or you're not. Right. Well, and I know that's a weird metaphor to use, but yeah. Hey, thanks for thanks for, thanks for sticking with me. Like you, the look on your face was just like, yeah, I'll, I'll allow it. That was good. Thanks. Yeah. Hey, hey hang gliding is is a thing. Sure, uh, it's a thing I'm never going to do. <laughs> no, um, but but in some ways, I mean, yeah, opening up a brewery is a is a giant risk taking proposition. I know we have. I mean, we're starting to see some shakeout here, even in LA County. I mean, LA County is still radically underserved for breweries. You know, we're at ninety and for a population of seventeen million. So, yeah, we got a way to go. But we're even seeing some shakeout where, yeah, some people are getting bounced out, you know, because of quality. But other people are getting bounced out just for the same stuff that they see out of the regular business stuff where, you know, it's like you're undercapitalized and you can't take the expenses that you need to weather until you get to that yeah. point where you're sustained. So, I mean, it's unfortunate. So, I mean, but it sounds like from what you're saying is, or maybe I'm reading too much on this. That there's kind of there there's being uh, there's kind of a crack in the foundation of the camaraderie uh, type of nonsense that or the camaraderie type of found founding principle of uh, brewing, right? Or do, or do you think it's or do you think it's not that? I don't think it's that. Here's the thing. I think that it has always existed the camaraderie among the owners the titular head brewers, the, you know, the personalities, but always at the back of the house were the accountants and the CFOs and the everybody else and this, the people, the people had to be concerned with the money. Yeah. So I think what we saw a lot of the time was, you know, Hey, we're going to collaborate. Hey, we're going to do some really cool things. And then just the next layer of that onion was, but yeah, we don't want you in our market or, you know, we're going to, you know, with, we want our SKUs to do better than, than yours. And we're going to do the tactics and we're going to do, you know, what happened. So I, I'm not calling it disingenuous by any means, but like, but it, it was pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. You know, it's the old Wizard of Oz type of thing, like where, you know, you see some of these first name brewers all getting together and being chummy, chummy, chummy. And like, and they are. And I genuinely believe that they like each other. And I genuinely believe that they saw the benefit of, you know, having friends in the industry and caring for each other. And, you know, but at the same time, there was then somebody who was looking at the bottom line being like, well, if we want to, you know, make our numbers the next quarter, you know, we're going to have to beat somebody's brains out. And that's what we do here, you know, because like, we're, we're a business, you know. Mm-hmm. But then you also see 
some some of the fun that comes with the the recent like Sierra Nevada collaboration mm-hmm. or the the Resilience IPA, yep. right? And like fifteen hundred breweries in the country signed up to do this, and brewers are still making it. And I think that that's the testament of Sierra's prowess in mm-hmm. the industry and their prominence in the industry, where you know it's people want to attach their name to Sierra Nevada. You know, I, I think the cause is important, a hundred percent. Um, but I do think that there's a lot of brewers that are attaching themselves to this so that they can use their brewery name in conjunction with Sierra Nevada, which is the platinum standard of. Well, I mean, in a lot of ways, I mean, that collaboration thing is always that's always going to be a, a thing that people want. Right. Yeah. You want to burnish yourself. But I mean, it's no different. Like you, you look in the online space and like, you know, say podcasters where podcasters will do collaborations just for that audience exposure and build up thing. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I get it. Um, is this you asking to come on ours? And what is your <laughs> podcaster? Oh, uh, it's mean. Um, I have two actually. I do the one for craft beer and brewing magazine, mm-hmm. uh, which is weekly. And then I do another, uh, small little podcast called steal this beer with Augie carton of carton brewing. Nice. And that is also weekly. Yeah, good, old, we, good old curtain brewing. Yeah, I like their beers. All right, we don't we don't see them out here. But oh, like no, like we barely see them in Jersey. They're they're still uh, super small. But I, I just remember driving by there once and like completely missing it the first time I drove by. Yeah, and then I was like, oh wait, there it is, <laughs> and tiny little building. Oh yeah, uh, they built a new one. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh, yes. Sorry, there's a Santa Claus walking uh, outside of the train station. I got distracted because uh, I haven't finished my letter yet and. I didn't want to miss my chance. Um, Welcome to Los Angeles. Yeah, um, but no, but you're right. But I, I and I think that those collaborations are kind of fun. But at the end of the day, there's also a little bit of a calculated risk, right? Mm-hmm. It's you could get a call from somebody saying like, "Hey, I just started this podcast that has, you know, maybe six listeners a week, and most of them is my mom downloading it five times. Uh, you know, can I do a collaboration with you?" And and you have to think about, you know, well, how is that going to impact your brand? Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 your audience, and can you vouch for their quality if you're going to attach, you know, your name to it? Right. Um, yeah, and and I think that that's getting harder for a lot of folks as well. Um, yeah. Well, so now speaking of Sierra Nevada, you know, a couple of years ago, it looked like when people were talking about it, it was like. Oh, you know, the big problem for craft breweries now is going to be all the, the majors and the mid-majors, right? You know, the Sierra Nevadas, the Boston Beers, the, you know, New Belgiums. They're all, they're all getting their shorts eaten by, the, by these little upstart breweries in their neighborhood. And we're seeing Sierra Nevada kind of, you know, with that resurgence, their refocus on pale ale, mm-hmm. kind of getting back to the, you know, like, no, no, remember us. We're good. Yeah. Um, my question is, do you think if, you know, we have those 7,000 breweries now. Do you think like somebody who's in that next cohort that's trying to open up, is there anybody who's going to come out of that who's going to become a mid-major? Do we have room for growth into mid-majors anymore, or is, no. it, or is it all going to be neighborhood? It's all neighborhood. Yes. Yeah. So, so in other words, anybody who's looking at opening a brewery, you're insane to think that you're going to be doing massive distribution and everything 100%. Else. Yeah. I had uh, Dave uh, Engers from Founders on my Craft Beer and Brewing podcast a couple weeks ago, and he he firmly believes that they could be the last of the million barrel breweries. I can believe that. I mean, he, he he has additional funding to get there now. Sure, but 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 even aside, but they also have the network and the size, mm-hmm. and they have the cachet, and they have beers that people want that they've been able to scale mm-hmm. up over time. Um, 
for somebody to for somebody else to get to that point who opens up right now it, it's almost mind-boggling to to comprehend that that'll happen um and i've run into some brewers where you know they want to get to 50,000 barrels in year 3 which is insane as well and i so i do think that there's you know there's some people who don't necessarily recognize like how much beer that is mm-hmm. um and then you know i was just over at uh, at at highland park before we recorded this and I was talking to uh, Bob Coons, and he was telling me that he actually puts the throttle on his brewery sometimes. Like, they're going to make 2,000 barrels uh, this year, uh, by the end of 2018, but they could, they could actually make a lot more. Mm-hmm. But he says, like, like we, just because we can doesn't mean that we should. And I think that that's a really important lesson that one fans should be thinking of as well. You know, like, you know, support local beer and make sure that you're getting it fresh uh and that it tastes good and you know you don't have to have you know huge uh expectations of your local brewery and two for the brewers who listen like it you slow your roll a little bit you know just just get into the slow lane now and again and just kind of figure out like are we actually doing what we want to do um and the way that we want to do it because at some point you know the 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 train has to stop for everybody and, you know, we're seeing some brewery closures right now, and it's because some are over leveraged. You mm-hmm. know, it's, you know, we thought we could get to 50,000 barrels. And so we took out, you know, $3 million in, you know, our capital costs. And turns out that people only wanted 10,000 barrels of our beer, and we're screwed. Like, so, it, it, you know, it's, yeah. Well, and I mean, I've, Bob, Bob has the advantage. He has two areas that he can pour out of, you know, dedicated to, to what he does. So the sure. fact that he's slowing his roll to 2000 is remarkably judicious. It's, it's prudent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I've also talked to other breweries around, you know, bigger breweries, breweries that, that have a big footprint. And they're telling me, yeah, you know, uh, we're setting our capex for the year to zero. Uh, so they're not spending any capital money. Yeah. You know, because for all those reasons, it's like, you know, who knows? We got to figure out where that shakes out. Do you think there's a point with these breweries, with the way they develop, that they lose the the appeal of being local? Is it that 50,000 barrel or 10,000 barrel mark? Is it, you know, at what point is there a point that you actually lose the whole, you know, mom and pop, I know the people making my beer feel? Sure. Where do you think that is? I, 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 I think it depends on the brewery itself. You know? like So as a beer fan, and I'm still a beer fan. Like, I'm really fortunate to cover this industry and to travel around and to, uh, you know, meet brewers and, and hang out. When I go to Sierra Nevada, when I'm lucky enough to either get to Chico or to Mills River, um, I get excited as a beer fan, mm-hmm. you know, because, like, of what Ken Grossman did and the way that the employees are treated there um, and knowing that story, but also just because like I drank a ton of Sierra Nevada pale ale, like as a college student. And I still do to this day. Like I keep six packs of it in my fridge pretty much all the time. So, and, and it's, it's a beer that I buy regularly. So like when I go to that place, I don't necessarily see them as this 1.5, 1.4 million barrel a year brewery, I see this as like, oh, this is something that I like and that like I, I'm passionate about, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, I, I, but then there's other places where, you know, if I went to Founders or something, like I might not, you know, feel that way. Um, but the people who live in Grand Rapids, like, and they go there after work on a Friday, it, it, it's all personal. Yep. Yeah. So, 
it'll be interesting to see how how all this happens because I mean yeah we are in a changing point for beer culture yeah we we are no longer the the uh, ragamuffin rebels hanging out in the corner in the garage you know with the the wire spool cables I mean like I said I mean we are now sitting in a brew pub that cost a couple million dollars to put together sure you know with all this historical architecture in here so the fact that we're here means this stuff is being taken seriously and it means that uh Hold on to your shorts, folks, because it's going to get interesting. Hundred <laughs> percent. All right. Well, John, anything else that, uh, about the book, about the podcast, about anything that you, that you want to make sure the audience knows? Uh, please go and subscribe to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. Uh, we would appreciate your support of reading about good brewing habits and uh, the the people who are doing some cool things in beer. And then uh, the new book, uh, Drink Beer, Think Beer, Getting to the Bottom of Every Bind, is available where fine books are sold or any books are sold, uh, yeah. for that matter. So Make sure you check the show notes. We'll include a link. Cheers. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, sir. Thank you. This is a lot of fun. Well, you know, man, once again, I got to agree with John. There is so much wisdom in what he says. Uh, I particularly agree with his sentiments uh, that there are too many bad breweries out there and that the heyday of brewery boom is over. Yeah. It's, it's a hard message for, you know, people to hear, you know, after all we're, we're so used to boosterism in the craft beer industry, but I think it's actually a necessary one to hear because, well, I mean, you don't patronize your local bad pizza shop. So why, uh, why give the brewery a pass? I mean, you know, people should not be upset when someone speaks truth. John has been around a long time. He has a very broad perspective uh, and has a lot of things to compare the current situation to. And I got to say, once again, I just agree with him 100%. Well, there you go. Next time John comes through, we'll have to meet up and talk about you know more beer and you know Google and all other sorts of fun stuff. <laughs> but I think it's time... For us to go. Yep. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be doing a quick tip, something other, and answering a couple questions. So please stick around. Yakima Chief Hops, formerly known as YCH Hops, is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief Hops is thrilled about the release of their new innovative product, Cryo Hops, to both commercial and home brewers, providing intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased brew house yield. Visit yakimachief.com to learn more. Hey, thank you for sticking around and welcome back to the show. Uh, just one question today because we still have, uh, you know, the all Q&A episode coming up. And don't forget, you got to get your questions in questions at experimentalbrew.com or call us or text us at 626-765-1AL. 
That way we can make sure that, well, you know, we do something interesting and good and get you the right answers. And speaking of right answers, we have one question that's out there. Uh, this one's been hanging out there for a little bit. So, Denny, this is for you from Sven, who says, I do have a question. Uh, Denny had read out a letter from John Palmer about yeast life cycle, which basically said that the yeast don't do anything after entering the rest phase. So what is it that causes the flavor of beer to change once packaged? What's the process that causes certain beers to improve with age and even some off flavors to seemingly disappear? What you got? Uh, well, basically, let me just recap here quickly. John basically said there's uh, no point in aging your beer for a long time because once the yeast is done, it's not going to be doing any more cleanup, right? Homebrewers have this uh, notion that if you leave the beer in the fermenter for a long time, the yeast will uh, kind of clean up any off flavors uh, that are there. And that's true. If there are still fermentables left and the yeast is still working, that's true. Once you uh, hit final gravity, though, there's nothing for the yeast to work on in there. So what is it that causes those changes that we all know actually happen? My best guess would be oxidation. Uh, oxidation can sometimes be a problem, and sometimes it can be your friend. But it's kind of like... Uh, when you make a batch of stew and it sits in the refrigerator and you eat it day after day for a few days and every day you go, wow, this is getting better. This is getting better. Well, obviously there's no fermentation going. I would hope that there's no fermentation going on in your stew that's in your refrigerator. And basically what's happening is that as oxygen gets to all those flavors, it, it changes them. So whether it's stew or beer, I would have to say that it's uh, an oxidation process that is making those changes in flavor. So in other words, no yeast activity, just oxidation. And I mean, who knows? There's probably a couple of other processes going on. There, yeah, including I, I'm not I'm not going to claim that uh, it's only oxidation or always oxidation. But I will tell you that if the fermentation is done, it ain't the yeast. There you go. So remember, uh, your yeast is only really doing magical things. While it's actually, you know, fed. The yeast has to actually have something to work on in order for it to do any work. Yeah, and speaking of, you know, how to get rid of things by not feeding them, our, our quick tip for the week is actually about our good old friend, the Norwegian rat. Ooh, rats. Yep. Yep. So I wrote an article about this, put it up on the website. We'll include links to the show notes. But, uh, you know, it's a certain fact of life that, you know, wherever humans are, there are going to be rats. In fact, the only place on planet Earth where there are no rats is Antarctica because rats are smarter than that. And the area where I live is former wineries and orange groves and whatnot. So with long established agricultural practices around here, I have fruit trees in my yard. So yeah, it's no surprise I, I have to deal with rats from time to time. And, you know, for the longest time, never had a problem with it. And then, uh, just this year, I've had a huge problem with it to the fact where the rats actually got into my grain and really reminded me I should get a cat and make it live in my garage. But I will say that, you know, with some good practices, there are ways that you can minimize rat damage. And I included links to the storage buckets I use, which until this until literally this month had kept the rats at bay you know, for the longest time. And now I'm happy to say that my brewery is rat free and everything is going to get cleaned good. So there you go. Prevent rats. I've, like I said, I store my grain in uh, plastic buckets with airtight lids, which has kept them at bay for a long time. And all my specialty grains, I actually will store vacuum packed and those never get touched. So uh, that's a good little uh, extra tip there. Uh, otherwise, keep an eye out. And if you see any signs of rats, get on them because uh, 
They multiply like rats. <laughs> so the pictures I saw looked like they had gone in through the lids. Did any of them actually go in through the side of the buckets? Nope. Just through the lid and only through the weak part of the lid. Yeah. Which is why I suggested to Drew that maybe he go pick up some aluminum flashing or something like that and uh, put it over the lid. That way, when you stack up your buckets, uh, do you stack your buckets normally? Yeah, I do. And so I would just put aluminum flashing on the top one. Yeah, right. Because obviously, uh, I, uh, if if those rats are uh, strong enough to be able to lift a bucket off to get to the one underneath it, then you've got no hope. And if they're strong enough to do that, I'm arming myself. <laughs> Yeah, man, you're going to need more than a cat if that's what's going on. Yeah, I'll finally find myself in, uh, oh, what was that horrible movie with the rats, uh, Wilson or something like that from years ago. Uh, no, thank you. And then, of course, uh, to go from a ratty note to something happy and something other, you guys will know that I'm a big fan of sous vide cooking. It's done a lot to actually sort of improve the amount of food that I eat in terms of clean protein and also ease some of the burdens in terms of like, you know, last minute cooking or, you know, being able to cook things all day and not have them overcooked. So, uh, one of the other things I always like to eat, my wife really loves is hard boiled eggs. You know, make egg salad with them, make, you know, hard, just hard boiled eggs or deviled eggs with them. But hard boiled eggs are kind of always a, a little bit of a pain in the butt. And there are multiple different ways of Doing it out there, I always used to use the one where it's like fill a pot with cold water, an inch over your eggs, put the you know put the eggs in the pot on the boiler, bring the thing up to a boil. The second it comes to a boil, turn it off, clamp a lid on, and wait 15 minutes, right? And that worked, and but it was still always made like for some harder eggs with kind of tough shells to peel. And then I had adopted a method I picked up from Series Eats, which was actually just steaming the eggs. So an inch of water in a pot, put the eggs in a steamer basket and steam them for 12 to 14 minutes and immediately chill. And those were even better and they peeled a lot easier. So, you know, yay, right? And then I just decided, well, you know, I got the sous vide gizmo and one of the things that people love to talk about with sous vide is making the perfect egg, uh, the 68 or 69 degrees Celsius egg, right? And, but I'm not interested in having a soft egg like that. I wanted to have some harder eggs for snacks. And I found a method from Chef Steps where you basically fire up your sous vide cooker uh, to 194 degrees. You put your eggs in the sous vide cooker for exactly 20 minutes, pull them out, shock chill them with ice for 30 minutes, and they peel beautifully. And I'm going to tell you guys, these are the best hard-boiled eggs I've ever had in my entire life. The texture on them is perfect. Like, it's not, it's not like super hard. The, the whites aren't rubbery. The yolks are cooked through, but they're, but they're not, you know, sulfurous. And they just are beautiful and stupidly easy methodology for making eggs. So if you have a sous vide cooker or you're about to get a sous vide cooker for Christmas or you get a sous vide cooker for Christmas, add this tip to your to your repertoire of things that you can sous vide because, boy, howdy, is it good. And you know what would make them even better? What? If you had your own chickens. Well, that's true, but I don't have my own chickens. <laughs> Time to get out of here. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a bunch of different beer forums. Uh, Drew is uh, generally found in the homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrewing channel. 
If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, or experiments, or especially questions, remember we got a Q&A episode coming up, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at Experimental Brew. And don't forget, you can always leave us a voicemail or send us a text at 626-765-1ALE. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. Brew.